Hello, and welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm your host, Annie Galvin. I'm the associate editor at Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that's free and online. You can read the magazine at publicbooks.org. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and even rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us at Public Books on Twitter and Facebook, and we would love to hear your feedback there. So this is the second to last episode in our series on the internet. And so far, we've covered the surprising and interesting origins of the internet, as well as the question, what is the internet doing to individuals and societies? Today, we're going to delve deeper into culture on the internet, by which I mean the stuff that billions of people make on it every day. And to do this, I'm joined by a real dream team. My name is Lauren Michelle Jackson. I'm an assistant professor of English at Northwestern University and also the author of White Negroes, an essay collection on cultural appropriation. My name is Richard So. I'm an assistant professor of English and cultural analytics at McGill University. I work on computational approaches to literature and culture. And uh, this December, I have a book coming out uh, called Redlining Culture with uh, Columbia University Press. In the series so far, we've covered a lot of criticisms of the internet, fair ones. For example, how racial bias has been encoded into it from the beginning and how pretty creepy things are being done around our data and surveillance of our data. But one thing I really appreciate about Lawrence and Richard's work is that they're certainly critical of the internet in many ways, as they should be, but as scholars who study the culture that humans produce on the internet, they view it all with a kind of curiosity and wonder that's really refreshing. Lauren and Richard are both English professors, who have spent a bunch of time taking the internet seriously as culture, which, you know, you don't really hear about that often. The internet now feels like such a vast space, almost infinite. And if you're trying to study it, where do you even begin? So it's really cool to have them both here to talk to each other about internet cultures. All right, so... Let's start with a question that we're asking all of our guests, and I'm curious to hear what people have to say to answer this. So what does being on the internet in 2020 feel like to you? How about you, Lauren? So being on the internet in 2020 feels like fighting against my baser instincts. (laughs) Yeah. Should I elaborate? (laughs) (laughs) I kind of like the brevity of that, but... (laughs) If you want to elaborate, go for it. But I also kind of like that little soundbite that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really just a matter of sort of finding new ways to trick myself into not being as online as I already am all the time. I definitely feel that. Um, so Richard, how about you? What does being on the internet in 2020 feel like to you? Yeah, I spent a weekend on this. I didn't couldn't come up with anything good, but um, I had um, <laughs> I decided I don't like this one because it's too dark. But the first one was um, unconsciously pathological, but I decided that that was um, <laughs> too dark. So the other one that I feel is actually more accurate for me, at least, is um, being on the internet in 2020 is like 
being in a very small room with a lot of people speaking very loudly and I can't see anyone. That's great. And that actually might feed into some of the things that we talk about later. So thank you both for that very much. And it might help just because I think we'll be focusing a bit on Lauren's book and Richard on some of the recent work that you've been doing on the internet. So I think it could be helpful to just give our listeners a little bit of an overview of that. So Lauren, if you wouldn't mind, I know this is the most annoying question, but could you give us just kind of a short summary or elevator speech about your recent book, White Negroes? Yeah. Um, oof, this feels like it was so I long know, ago. Yeah. No, it came out in November and I'm just like, what? When was that? Um, so basically my book is a sort of investigation of what I like to call blackness in decay. Mm. And so it's really taking a post-millennium, post-2000s pop cultural view, everything from music to food. And there's a large portion of the book that does deal with internet culture and digital media, and really trying to look at the racial aesthetics of how we express ourselves um, in popular culture and thinking about how the legacy of um, what we'd call like appropriation of Black aesthetics continues in a sort of more contemporary era, and also the way in which it's sort of different and mutated and, and looks very strange compared to what we would think of as far as certain appropriate gestures of old, things like minstrelsy, things like rock and roll. Mm. You know, that's sort of like a classic view of appropriation, but this book is also really trying to look at the the weirdness that the millennium age brings to that subject. Awesome, and we'll definitely get more into that, so thank you. And Richard, could you tell us a little bit about um, a lot of the work that you've done, including your first two books, as I understand it, are more so on you know, what we would more traditionally recognize as literature and print culture, older cultural forms. So I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about some of the recent questions that you've been asking in your research as you turn increasingly to culture on the internet. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Methodologically, I would describe myself as someone who uses um, large scale data mining techniques to study culture at scale. Um, and this is a method or tool really well suited to the internet because everything is so at scale on the internet. I guess I would divide the work into three categories. Uh, one is I'm really interested in what readers and viewers do online. Uh, how do they form interpretive communities and how do groups form their own set of norms or categories to uh, yeah, basically create community? So I'm working on something um, on Goodreads to see how do lay readers um, develop their own categories of judgment versus, say, experts like professors. Mm. The next category is uh, on narrative. So I'm interested in how do narratives form online. So mm. I'm working on a piece that's um, like, how did uh, COVID become storified or become a narrative in culture? Uh, looking at websites like Wattpad, where already there are like 10,000 COVID stories on Wattpad, just regular mm. people telling stories about quarantine and stuff like that. And the last thing, um, I also work on uh, critical algorithm studies. I'm interested in how like um, algorithms like Google search, uh, what are their biases? How do they mm. work? Um, what do they include or exclude? So the third part of my work, I would describe it as a critical study of the algorithms that drive our internet behavior and our uh, lives. So, yeah. So you're both I believe technically based in English departments, but this is a podcast about the internet. Um, and both of you 
as we've heard a little bit, have experience studying and writing about older cultural forms like the novel, print culture, music. And to start off, I'm curious about what do you consider to be internet, quote unquote, culture that's new and native to the web? So in other words, what are a few examples of new types of cultural objects that we see on the internet that we haven't really seen before in other cultural domains that you've been looking at in your work? So Lauren, would you want to start with that? Yeah, um, I think what's really new about the internet is almost like not even the objects themselves, Mm. but I think the way that they travel and move Mm. and disseminate and the rate at which they do. So if you think about something like a GIF or, you know, any type of sort of moving image online, well, you know, you can look back and see conceptual artists and visual artists, you know, working with the same types of weird and and sporadic types of images, like going back decades, right? But I think there is something very new about the ability to share that to thousands upon thousands of people, to remix images at the blink of an eye, to edit images without the use of like, you know, even software that you have to purchase. Mm. Like I, I remember even just like 10 years ago, I was, you know, trying to torrent versions of like Photoshop and it would take like forever to to download or something like that, right? But like you can do that from just like Instagram, right? right? And so I think the accessibility, I don't know if that, you know, can be like another type of object in mm. and of itself, but I think just the access and ability and speed at which these things circulate is just like, I mean, it is a whole other medium unto itself. Yeah, that's great. And you get into in your book, and we can definitely talk about this more, but that really complicates notions of authorship and sort of creative, the creative origin of a piece of culture in a, in kind of a new way. I mean, obviously the notion of authorship has, has always been a little unstable, but because we don't really know exactly where something starts and a meme or a gif is often so kind of participatory. There's so many people who've input something into it. Um, it just gets it makes everything kind of slipperier and more complex in a lot of ways. So, And so, Richard, it sounds like Lauren has been suggesting that it's not so much that the internet has birthed tons of new cultural forms, but more that we're seeing continuity with older forms. But what's really new is how they circulate and how different people can kind of put their hands on them. So I'm curious about how you would answer that question about what feels new in terms of culture on the internet. Yeah, um, everything Lauren says really resonates. The the, the lowering of the bar- barriers to becoming a creative, making art, um, has been a radical transformation of the internet. The other way that I, I think about it too, um, beyond art making and culture making, uh, in terms of communication, one way that communication scholars have have described this, which I think is a really uh, nice formulation, is um, the traditional model of mass communication after World War II is what they call one to many. So Mm. like you write a book and then many people read it, you make a movie, many people consume it. Mm. The way that they describe it today is what they call many to many. So even if it's just you joining a discussion on on Twitter, you're joining a conversation with many people talking to many other people. And that to me seems profoundly new and um, original. Yeah, that's great. In a moment, we'll definitely get into looking at some of these specific, I don't know, I guess, manifestations of of culture online. But I want to start by zooming out a little bit. And I'm curious to hear about your experience actually trying to study the internet, because 
It seems like from a cultural perspective, people are still a little bit sure, unsure how to classify it, right? Because I think for better or for worse, probably for worse, um, when we think about culture, I think a lot of us have been conditioned to think about museums or theater or the great novels and poems and maybe not gifts and a bunch of people all talking at the same time. Um, and Richard, in our earlier correspondence prior to this episode, you said that you find the internet to be a truly fascinating place in terms of cultural production, but we don't really yet have a good understanding of how it all works. So I'm curious about, A, kind of what is fascinating to you about the internet as a place of cultural production? And then second, what do you think we still don't quite understand yet about it? Yeah, for me, I've always been really interested in mass and popular culture, even though I have a PhD in English, um, the kind of great author model, like spending 10 years reading Virginia Woolf. I think that's I think that's awesome, but it's not really for me. And I've always been very interested in culture being produced by many different kinds of people. To me, what's really fascinating about the internet culture as an object is really for the first time, we can really know what many, many people are thinking at Mm. once, simultaneously, instantaneously, without any filters. It's to me, the closest thing to culture as everyday practice. And yeah, I think, you know, as we were talking about before, we don't really have a vocabulary, um, a method to really make that a coherent object of study yet. And I think people are trying lots of different ways. Like I love what Lauren does and what other people are doing. I think close reading, close analysis, uh, tracking memes can be really powerful. Uh, my own work, though, I'm interested in trying to understand like what a million people saying stuff, how that could be some kind of object of study. Mm. Looking at 10,000 random comments on Twitter or Goodreads, is that yeah, is that culture? Is that meaningful? Yeah. Um, I don't really know. And often I'll say, no, it's not meaningful. Like, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I like it. I guess the kind of cultural Democrat in me, I, I believe they're saying interesting things. I want to know more about what they're saying. So that's sort of what drives me to that object. Mm, that's really fascinating. And Lauren, how about you? What kind of attracts you to the internet as an object of study? And what do you think that we still don't really understand or or what we need to kind of start working to understand about it. Yeah, so what initially attracted me was the fact that I was in graduate school, I was online all the time <laughs> to a fault, literally. <laughs> um, but it did occur to me that, you know, I could actually apply the things that I was learning in a English graduate school setting with the text to the things I was experiencing in everyday life and the things around me, whether it was pop music or memes um, or other forms of internet culture. I actually think, so I've actually sort of pulled back a little bit from writing about the internet so much in recent months, I think because of what actually Richard was talking about, which is, you know, I do think close reading memes and things is like, it's really fun and I think it's actually really valuable and, and can teach us a lot about um, popular culture and why people are attracted to the things that they are online. But I also think it has its limitations. And I realize I think a lot of digital media is sort of getting into this rut where it's like, you know, there's a hot meme and then there's like a rush, like all the critics go to explain like, here's why this meme is, you know, a perfect encapsulation of like our current moment. And, you know, it it almost becomes like, um, actually, no, I I was going to say like a chicken and egg problem, but that's not really a great like metaphor, but it's, it's, it's almost like, is this meme coalescing because of, because of like the cultural, you know, circumstances 
Or is this is this me mobilizing culture in an interesting way? Or do they maybe like maybe it was just this one meme account that happened to have a million followers. And now we're all like sharing like a random meme from like Gossip Girl or something, even though Gossip Girl hasn't been like in the zeitgeist for like decades. Right. So (laughs) which is which is just to say that, yeah, I think the people who are who are working on at like a network level have a lot that critics like me who are still, I don't know, I'm very much a product of my training at this <laughs> point. Like I just got to grad school, like, come on. Uh, but <laughs> uh, I think there's like a lot that we could sort of learn from really taking this. I don't even know if it's just a wide view, but it's just like a big macro level view and really contending with that, I think is something that is going to have to happen. Yeah, Richard, do you want to respond to that? Because yeah. that sounds like, I mean, the question that I'm, I have for you is sort of like, can your methods of computational analysis add something to these ch- real challenges that Lauren is talking about? Yeah, I, I first I just want to say I, I really appreciate Lauren's comments of like self-awareness, you know, self-criticism. Um, <laughs> I hope, you know, listeners know about Lauren. You know, she's active on Twitter. She's an active public writer. And, and in a way that I'm not, I'm not really... I don't really participate in internet culture. It kind of freaks me out. I'm just sort of stay back. As, as <laughs> You're just lurking. Yeah. <laughs> my, my kind of love of the internet is the possibility of a kind of radical democracy. And, but, you know, the danger is always that hierarchies within traditional culture can be replicated um, on the internet where you have influential people on the internet, like at the New Yorker or Slate or whatever. Um, yeah, just deciding things that might not reflect what's actually mm-hmm. going on, like the 80 other million people, you know, saying stuff. So yeah, so what, you know, just to the second part of your question, what kind of drew me, these tools could potentially be democratizing that it's really opening up the voices, like everyone's kind of equal, right? So mm-hmm. even if you're like a staff writer for The New Yorker, or some random person, right, on yeah. Twitter, you can kind of treat each voice as as equal in, in the protect production of these ideas and languages and discourses on the internet. So I like that. I will say, though, that the more I do this work, it's constantly disappointing <laughs> that, <laughs> um, that um, um, you discover that it's just a lot of noise out there. You know, it's hard mm-hmm. to find a meaningful signal. And sometimes it is to people like, at, you know, magazines, they are kind of saying interesting things. So um, it hasn't been the thing that I want it to be, but I, I still believe it can be in some ways. But mm. um, there's a tempering of expectations. Yeah, that's a great point. It feels like what is truly democratic is just that the barrier of access is so low. I mean, of course, access to the Internet is is not equal. And, um, you know, it's striated by all kinds of different privileges. But it's easier to write a tweet than it is to write a novel that will then, you know, be um, read by a lot of people. And then I think later we can definitely talk about, you know, what happens after access, right? Because I think, Lauren, your work really gets into how power comes into play when we start thinking about not just people making a meme, but how that meme circulates and kind of what happens to it. Um, And you write really perceptively and interestingly about uh, the racial dynamics that define sort of how a lot of memes are created and then distributed, co-opted, appropriated, often even monetized by users of different racial identities across the web. And there was one sentence from your book really, really jumped out at me. Um, You write, the spirit of black expression inflects these things called memes that move about the world as if they too are constantly surveilled, which in fact they are. So I would love to hear from you 
about the link that you see between how memes move through the internet and how black expression has historically moved through culture, uh, perhaps under surveillance. Uh, I would just love to hear you expand a little bit on that really interesting quote. So in the book, I'm, I'm trying to offer a provocative proposition, which is that, you know, if you compare sort of a history of Black language in the diaspora as a language and a way of expression and communication that has always been surveilled, curtailed, colonized, you know, all the, you know, all the bad stuff, but also has, you know, been able to remake itself and reform itself because of those conditions. Mm. And you compare that to a sort of internet environment in which, you know, the thing that allows memes to circulate is also the thing that ultimately like causes their demise. Like the Mm. ability to be so circulatable is like what makes them less unique and less funny and less, Mm. you know, And then you reach the end of like how you're able to remake them, right? And so, you know, I'm trying to draw this correlation that's also strengthened by the fact that a lot of memes, particularly memes with textual elements, borrow from recognizable features of Black vernacular, Mm. whether it's Black American vernacular or elsewhere across the diaspora. And so bringing all those things together, I was trying to think about, okay, how does how does a culture that's sort of always under threat move and change and sort of retain its sort of core values while also pulling new things sort of out of the sky, which again, sounds like memes and it sounds like black culture. And mm-hmm. so looking at memes that feel very black or at least owe a sort of grand debt to black aesthetics of a kind, I thought it was really interesting to massage that out in an essay. Yeah, absolutely. And another point that you make, and I I know other people have made this too, but the observation that often memes that visually feature Black subjects are often kind of outsourced to like express emotion by users of all races, you know, they're like the Oprah memes and the Tyra Banks and the Crying Jordan. And um, so there's a way in which they're, they're kind of all these forms of of labor that are kind of being creative labor that are being done and that are then being taken up by other people without, you know, credit or attribution or compensation or anything like that. That was just something that, that I was thinking about when you were talking about that. But, um, Richard, does that ring any bells with, you know, the way that you've been studying to see how a kind of narrative sense gets made out of these millions of people shouting in a room or how some kind of organizing structure happens out of that. I wonder whether Lauren's discussion of kind of how these objects move and circulate, does that resonate with anything that you've been thinking about? Yeah, I think everything Lauren says is really insightful and rings true. Um, It just gets me thinking that, you know, so much of the history of cultural innovation in America is dependent on Black innovation, right? Black cultural forms and the internet just seems like a really good example of that. I just more have questions for Lauren, you know. Um, the, The one weird thing about the internet is, is, you know, no one can see each other. Um, so identity can never really be certified. People claiming to be white or black, you know, there's sort of the racial anonymity um, combined with the intense uh, focus on racial discourse on the internet. And that's kind of like an interesting paradox or, uh, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I have more questions. Yeah, no, totally. I think that's like a really, that's like another one of those things that I think 
anyone who writes about the internet has to contend with. We can't essentialize, like, you know, as, as sort of foolhardy as it is to do so elsewhere, to say that, like, Black people listen to this or Black people write this kind of novel and white people write this kind of novel. It's like on the internet, it's like, that's, you really can't do that. You know, you can't say <laughs> that, you know, so-and-so is necessarily appropriating this vernacular from Black people because you don't know where they got it from. And I think this is what's interesting about Instagram as well, which is like in the rise of people like the Kardashians, where it's like you have 19-year-old girls in Denmark dressing like like video vixens <laughs> who have no, you know, cognizance of like early 2000s hip hop culture. Mm. Like, you know, they're not appropriating it from Black women from the Bronx necessarily. They're appropriating it from... Kim Kardashian's sort of fantasy wonderland version of what a non-white person in America dresses like, mm. right? So it's just like it becomes so so convoluted to talk about appropriation as a straight sort of one-way mm. shot from black to white or, you know, Latina to white or whatever, right? Because it's just so, it's so messy online. And I think I love that messiness. Um, but I think finding ways to talk about race online in ways that don't revert to these sort of really old essentialist means of talking about race is like the challenge. That's a a really interesting example of a teenager in Northern Europe um, sort of copying. It's like these facsimiles of Black culture. Just to get more specific, what do you think is lost in that? So if we are seeing these acts of appropriation or copying that get kind of increasingly distanced from the original kind of cultural origin? Like what exactly is being lost or changed in that? I mean, obviously like any form of a citational practice gets lost. And I actually don't think, I don't think that's like as huge of a problem Mm. until money gets involved. So like, you know, there's like millions of people on Instagram, white girls on Instagram wearing like big hoops and I don't know, curling their hair in such a way, or I don't know, like playing with their ethnicity, Mm. right? And it's like, okay, whatever, like who cares? But it does matter if like, you know, Forever 21 decides to give so-and-so a modeling contract, you know, that's when it starts to get sinister again, because then it's like, oh, like you're not going to give money to like the black person who's cool. It's the white person who's doing the less interesting version of what the black person was doing, even if it's so many people removed from whoever authentically created the thing or whatever, quote unquote, authentically. There's also like levels to this, Mm -hmm. right? So when we're talking about people in the world of like fine arts Mm. and appropriation, people with millions and millions and trillions of dollars on the line at like these big artistic institutions, right? And people are appropriating from black artists. Mm. Like, yeah, that's like a huge problem. But there's also the sort of everyday gestures of just being online and sort of intaking what you see and not necessarily having a super elaborate bibliographic record, which mm. is kind of just what it means to like be online right. now. Yeah, that's such a kind of valuable intervention that your book makes into these conversations because. I think that often, especially in sort of mainstream spaces like the op-ed page of whatever newspaper, in a lot of the predominantly white spaces where these conversations about cultural appropriation happens, it often kind of stops at 
well, you know, it's wrong, it's offensive, blah, blah, blah. But it all feels very, those critiques feel very vague. And I found it really just useful to think about the way that it's not just that it's offensive or tasteless. It's actually, it represents kind of a theft, like a theft of power and capital from people who are doing creative work. So I just wanted to thank you for, for me, that really helped shift my thinking around these conversations. This podcast is a production of Public Books, a free online magazine where scholars, critics, activists, and other experts share their deep learning with the public. I'm Kelly Dean McKinney, the publisher of Public Books, and I'm here to invite you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. We'll email once each week with the latest from the magazine, essays and interviews that answer questions like, what can big data teach us about eviction laws? How can we design artificial intelligence that does not reinforce racial and gender bias? And why is it that queer female fans have so much love for TV shows that feature straight men hugging each other a lot? For these answers and more, subscribe to the newsletter at publicbooks.org. Thanks, and back to the show. Richard, do you have any... I was just just reading this weekend your recent article in PMLA, which is a literary studies journal. And um, you can definitely talk more about that. But as I as I gather, you and your co-author Edwin Roland are sort of reading a very large corpus of texts from the late 20th, uh, mid to late 20th century by black writers and white writers. And you're sort of looking at the way that race is expressed in this large archive of novels. And I'm, I guess from what Lauren was saying and what we've all kind of been thinking about, it seems like that gets even more complicated when we're talking about material online, like thinking about what racial expression even is and what its significance is. So I'm just wondering if you have anything kind of to add on what Lauren was saying. Uh, yeah, the thing I wanted to, to add, um, what I've noticed was happening a lot with people who make culture for a living is like people like Holly Herndon, like Grimes, you know, they want to, they kind of want to make their own platforms to promote mm. their own community, the things that they care about. Mm. Um, like a platform I really love a lot is AO3. I don't know if you guys know this, yeah. like young people love it, Archive of Our Own. It's a fan fiction website. Mm. And it's a place where people just upload stories, uh, share stories, talk to each other. You know, 20,000 stories are uploaded per day. Um, and if you compare that to, say, Random House, like a major big book publisher, it completely dwarfs any other, you know, print cultural mechanism happening today. And um, AO3 is interesting in that a short story, a science fiction short story that was uploaded, a science fiction short story was just, uh, I think it won the Hugo Nebula, uh, won the, either the Hugo or Nebula Prize for science fiction. So it was the first time a work of fan fiction won a major literary prize. Mm. So something that like none of us probably really care about is right. incredibly important for a culture. And the norms on that platform, which has like, you know, like 100 million people on it, is really like uh, really extremely progressive in terms of gender and sexuality. And you kind of can't get away with doing terrible bullshit on that platform because the the values and the norms they uphold are really progressive and really good. It'd be really cool to have a kind of um, AO3 for people interested in black culture, right? You, mm. we, like the, the idea is that it's really the future of cultural consumption and cultural making. And, you know, with the kind of nichification of culture, we don't have to necessarily rely on Twitter or Facebook, which mm. help propagate like horrible forms of cultural appropriation, racism, 
um, the idea of a kind of dominant mainstream platform that we all have to appeal to and, and concede to, it just, you know, it's not really the case anymore on the internet, which I think is really cool. Uh, younger people are creating their own platforms that support the mm. things that they care about. Mm, that's super interesting. Lauren, do you have anything, any other thoughts about platforms? I mean, I, I, and kind of what Richard has been talking about, it, it becomes clear from your writing that you've spent some time on Twitter and also some time on Tumblr. And, you know, obviously different platforms that exist have different affordances and drawbacks, but I found it really interesting how Richard's talking also about inventing new platforms um, that could foster kind of healthier cultural expressions maybe than our existing ones do. So I'm curious whether you've thought about how kind of platform factors into all of the stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah, I think with platforms, like, I don't know, I increasingly find myself nostalgic for, I don't know why I call it like the old days, because like, <laughs> not the old days, like there's still, there's still message boards right. and like forums and pro boards and like all that stuff is like, it's still exists but I do kind of miss when it was a little bit a little bit more scattered a little bit more Yahoo groups like it just like it wasn't as pretty mm. as seamless it wasn't as clean I think also like the size of Twitter and Facebook is just like they're so mammoth and I think there is a lot of even in like black online cultural spaces talk about you know creating our own which is in some ways an extension of what has sort of always been a mantra of black political organizing, which is, you know, making our own spaces, our own universities, our own community centers, like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I also think it gets like weirdly capitalistic. Mm. Um, so like, I know, I think Issa Rae recently has been like promoting some new platform meant for black creators to, you know, per the sort of advertising copy, like, Basically, like, make money from your own culture. Like, mm. you know, your, our culture has been stolen so often online. Like, now you can actually make money for the things that you create mm. and own the things that you create. And there's something about that, like, proprietary language that I think is, I don't know. I don't know if it's really as as reparative as it supposes to be. Because I think the thing about the internet is you can't own culture, the right. idea isn't necessarily to have ownership over a thing, but to have a more equitable ethical relationship to it. Yeah, it, it seems like maybe there, I'm kind of hearing that there's maybe a tension between, you know, that the freedom, the low barrier of access, uh, the phrase that I think Richard used of the kind of radically democratic nature of online participation and cultural creation. And then on the other side, yeah, the notion of copyright and ownership and compensation. And it's it's like in an ideal world, we would be able to have both, but it's sort of hard to have both, I guess. Do you have anything you'd want to add to that, Richard? Or does that kind of... Yeah, are we I, done with I, platforms? I, I was interested to hear Lauren's take. I I want people to make money. I don't know. Like, I want people to get paid. You know, I, I understand, like, you know, um, the, the concern. I mean, I have this sort of utopian... Um, desire, you know, uh, John Dewey, you know, in the early 20th century had this ideal of culture as, you know, really the anti-museum ethos, right, which is like culture will be really truly culture and democratic when it just saturates our everyday life, right? And it, the internet's cool in that it seems to be, you know, drifting in that direction, you know, mm. people like being a creative person is just something that everyone can do. And it could just be a part of your day, 
uh, a part of your life. Like I really like that a lot, and that's close to Dewey's ideal. But yeah, I just I just feel like you know it's completely inextricable from potentially making money. And I don't know, it just, it seems almost impossible not to replicate the older hierarchies of cultural production. Mm. A good friend of mine, um, Hua Xu, just feels like the trend is more people will be making culture, but fewer people will be able to make a living Mm. doing it, which seems to me right. Um, And I think for someone like Hua, who is more of a creative, um, that worries him. It, it doesn't worry me. I'm just a scholar. Like, I don't make things. Or I don't make, I'm not a creative person. So I'm okay with that. And, and I like that. But I understand how for artists, that's terrifying. Yeah. Lauren, I'm wondering, I'm, when Richard's talking about that, I'm thinking about an example that you talk about in your book, in a chapter about viral videos. Um, and you're talking about the the meme eyebrows on fleek, which I don't know, um, was, I guess created, I didn't, I mean, this speaks to, you know, the power of this phenomenon, but I didn't know actually who had originated it. But, uh, you point out that it was originated by a 16 year old named Kayla Newman and this phrase eyebrows on fleek or like anything on fleek, you know, went viral. And we certainly reached a point where, you know, you see, white internet users using it to gain some kind of cultural or social capital. Brands then start to seize on the newest cultural trend and incorporate it into ads. And so people, not Kayla Newman, actually end up making money off of her own invention, basically. I'm wondering, does that sound to you like an example sort of of what Richard's talking about, where it feels like you know, at some level the money does kind of matter <laughs> because it's kind of a bummer that she never it seems like she never really saw any um, compensation for creating this kind of cultural wildfire in her bedroom or wherever she made that Instagram video. Yeah, totally. Um, so Doreen St. Felix, who's a staff writer at The New Yorker, you know, a couple of years ago had written a feature on Kayla Newman for The Fader. And, you know, as Newman told her, I didn't make any money off of mm. this. Just thinking about the the disparity between how everywhere that word and that expression was. I mean, it was in a Nicki Minaj and like Beyonce video. Right. That's insane. Like Beyonce is like using your term. Yeah. And like, yeah, that's like really, you know, that's really cool. But also like you can't pay for college or groceries or rent, <laughs> you know, with, you know, my word was in Beyonce's video, right? You can't pay your bills with that. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that in a sense what, what you're explaining there is, again, another way that the internet isn't necessarily creating these new behaviors, but it's more continuity of older forms, right? Like, I think in a lot of ways, that sounds like some of the practices that you mentioned really early in our conversation, like minstrelsy and kind of rock and roll being an appropriation of um, Black musical forms. And I guess I did want to ask you about the concept that you write about, which it's a term that you take from Joshua Lumpkin Green's master's thesis, uh, the the term digital blackface. And I guess in essence, it means how technology like video games, social media enables non-black individuals to slip into black personhood. And I think that was a quote from you. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just explain that concept as one of these modes of of, of being online that are both new and old, essentially. Sure. So to be appropriately modest, as you just said, I taken the term from uh, Joshua Lumpkin Green, which is where I first encountered it. 
um, in a master's thesis he wrote looking at the game um, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas and thinking about the way in which the black avatar is being mobilized by, you know, someone behind the controller who could be black, could be white, could be anybody. And so for me, the term, I think, really just encompasses like a a broad constellation of gestures Mm. enabled by the internet. So everything from actual campaigns birthed on 4chan to, you know, try to confuse feminists and uh, activists of color online by starting fictitious hashtags that, you know, become real hashtags because they're hashtags such as like there was the hashtag called um, End Father's Day that was like ostensibly started by feminists of color. Mm. And it was actually organized by, you know, a group of a group of users on 4chan who, again, we don't necessarily want to call them white because we don't know the racial makeup of these people, but, you know, assume a very sort of white, very masculine politics, right? Yeah. And so, like, gestures like that, I consider, you know, within the purview of digital blackface, which is to say using the sort of means of the internet and the an- relative anonymity of the internet to sort of inhabit uh, a sort of racial identity or assert a racial identity. But then, you know, on the sort of other end of the spectrum, the sort of more subtle end of the spectrum, I think about the way in which the internet allows us to sort of signify blackness you know, without actually putting on the shoe polish or, you know, whatever, or actually mm-hmm. having to go through all the costuming that it takes to do a performance, right? Mm. And again, this is something that is sort of enabled by something like a automated gift button where you can perform the sort of sassiness or the sort of extra uh, extraness that gets attributed to Black bodies, Black people, um, particularly Black femmes, of various genders um, and the way that you can sort of borrow that for to sort of emote Mm. on your own terms on the internet without actually having to be, say, fluent in the sort of queer vernacular. You know, it's so easy to to actually just appropriate and borrow from that via digital means. I guess this this makes me wonder about the practice of writing fan fiction and the AO3 site that you taught, the fan fiction site that you talk about, because yeah, the the kind of extreme possibilities for having or, or sort of inhabiting other identities on the internet obviously can be used toward, to put it lightly, sort of nefarious means. But that can also, I think, in some ways be liberating, let's say, for like young queer people or, you know, I think in the fanfic space or in kind of the role-playing game space, that notion of being able to kind of put on and take off an identity you know, can sometimes be a little bit more productive or liberating in some ways. So I'm wondering if you see any relationship between what Lauren was talking about and the fanfic sites that you, or the other communities that you study. Um, Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah, this kind of gets at this big question that's always on my mind, which is, you know, fundamentally is the internet making us better or worse human beings, right? And this is probably like, (laughs) you know, we don't know. Just a small question. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I I wonder about that every day because I don't know. But um, we, we talked about kind of earlier cultural forms, you know, and, and the training that all three of us ha- have had with the novel in particular. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, the novel was a new technology and 
if you look at something like uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, it was, you know, a radical example of, right, slipping into, right, the body of this black slave. And then, mm. you know, the, the famous scene where Uncle Tom is like whipped, you know, extremely violently, and that's galvanized all this stuff. And to me, it gets to this question of, you know, the core question, the timeless question in many ways of the relationship between art and empathy, right? Like trying, like the whole point of the novel was you could try out, see what it feels like to be a different kind of person. And ideally, in the end, it makes you like a better person in some way, right? Like you, a man try, like sees what it like, is like to be a woman, a white person sees like what it's like to be a black person. And yeah, in many ways, right, the internet is just an encoding of those older dynamics, right? The relationship mm. between art and empathy. But it's so intense for me, you know, you know, hearing Lauren talk about this and your question and that it's no longer just, you know, reading stuff. It's like an 18 year old white kid, you know, in, in the South can go on black Twitter and basically pretend to be a black person and see what that's like. It's, you know, a hundred times more intense than just, you know, a white person reading Uncle Tom's Cabin mm. in the late 19th century. And it's deeply behavioral. Mm. It is probably going to change you in some ways. And I just I think we just don't know. Like, it's an important question. What, what does that do to a person? Um, ideally, trying out what it feels like to be a black person, if you're not black on Twitter, somehow this is going to give you some meaningful experience. It's going to change you in some way for the better. But, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of skeptical. But so, yeah, in many ways, it's as you said before, it's a continuity with the older cultural forms, but just so intensified where the stakes feel so much mm. higher now. Mm. Lauren, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I also wanted to add add that I think part of what what's like worth mourning, I guess, um, I think about something like Tumblr, which ultimately became the sort of punching bag for a certain kind of, you know, socially conscious person online, in part because for a lot of people, it was the first time they got to come together with people they felt like were their community. Mm. So people who couldn't be out in their quote unquote real lives, you know, could be out mm. in various ways on Tumblr. Yeah. And I think that's also why it's important to like not talk about like internet identity as like a sort of one-to-one relationship. Mm. If you're a queer person online, but you're, you present as not queer outside, like, does that make you any less queer? Like, no. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think part of why, you know, now it's kind of reached a sort of insidious place. It's like, you know, the freedom of being whoever you want to be <laughs> online, like has clearly has its like downsides because it's, it doesn't just mean being who you want to be. It mm. means like being who you want to be. Like, what does that mean <laughs> to different people? It means different things to different people, right? You know, for some people, it means expressing an inner truth. For some people, it means play acting. Mm. I think that's, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's interesting having these conversations about the internet because at some point you get to these extremely metaphysical, <laughs> philosophical <laughs> questions like, what is a person? <laughs> what is a self? What is a body? Is this making us better or worse? So, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of opening up a whole other Pandora's box. Um, but I guess as we wrap up, I'm just wondering whether either or both of you, is there anything that you want to say? related at all to any part of the conversation that you haven't gotten a chance to? Anything you want to add into the conversation at this point? Um, I guess the only thing I want to say, partly to to colleagues, academic colleagues, but also mm-hmm. to certainly like journalists or just regular people, that mm-hmm. um, for people who care about the social impact of language and stories and narrative, I just feel like the internet is God's gift to you know people who want, <laughs> you know, that, you know, we've always sort of 
hypothesize this belief that stories and language have this impact on reality. And I think with the internet, we can really finally truly see that in action in a really visceral way that the internet in many ways is the place where language becomes a kind of action or discourse becomes an action. And I think it's just unfortunate that, you know, this is not a huge part of the humanities or English departments, right? How many professors in English department are actively studying the internet? Mm. Right? I just think it's such an important part of continuous with our tradition, but uh, central to all the things that we care about with affect, aesthetics, narrative, art, like it's, mm. this is really the internet. And uh, and yeah, and I hope that also like regular people or journalists, you know, take it seriously in, in the way that is not just the kind of interesting dominant things, but the, the massive, like take seriously the 80 million people on AO3 mm. making stories. Like I think that's really important because they, in my opinion, you know, they probably impact society more than 10 writers at the New Yorker in many ways, you know, like right. these, these are they in mass are incredibly important and they're doing stuff and we need to take it seriously to make a better society. Yeah, that's really beautifully said. Uh, Lauren, do you have anything that you want to add? Um, I'll just add something like slightly combative, which is just to say (laughs) (laughs) right at the end (laughs) that if you work on, write about, think about the contemporary Like, you have to contend with the internet. Mm. Even if you don't write about the internet, Mm. you have to contend with its existence and it as a means of, again, storytelling, language formation, um, narrativizing the way Mm. people are making sense of the world around them. You just have to. If you don't, you're missing, like, you're missing it. You're missing it. So that's my words of please do this. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted. Yeah, I think that's really well said. So the last question that we just ask everyone is, what do you think is the next big question that we need to be asking as we study the internet, culture on the internet, identity on the internet, these topics that we've been talking about in our conversation? Richard, what do you think? I think it's really, really important to understand the relationship between social processes or social things like racial inequality, income inequality, uh, environmental collapse, and narrative. So yeah, exactly what Lauren's mm. saying, right? People make stories to make sense of their lives. Um, I think it was Joan Didion who said, um, we tell stories to live. I mean, the internet, as exactly what Lauren is saying, is a place that people are doing it. But I think one next step in terms of the work that I find interesting and the work that I do is like, so what, right? What's the impact mm. of that, right? Yeah. Like, we're about to head into a recession, a depression, you know, stories are going to change. Can we tell stories that mitigate the impact of disease or uh, economic precarity or vice mm. versa? I think that the fact that everyone tells stories on the internet, like, like so what? Like, what is that really? What right. is that really doing? And I think that's, we have to start figuring that out. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it. How about you, Lauren? I think, and this is, this is not really like a question for myself. Like this is for someone else to do. <laughs> someone else because it's not. Yeah. It's like it's like it's very it's like very far outside my like purview and like area of expertise mm. or influence at all. But I do think we need to figure out what to do now that the platforms and the people who control them mm. are like not the like scrappy little guys mm. anymore. They're Goliath, and I think we're still like catching up 
to that, like in our head, like we still think about like Twitter is, oh, it's Jack. And, you know, he tweets at me and like, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, Twitter (laughs) is a behemoth. And I, (laughs) and like, even, I don't know. I just like think like even the U S government, like doesn't treat Mark Zuckerberg seriously. And like he's running circles around them. And it's just like, okay, I think we need to contend with the idea that like these spaces that once felt young and untried and, Mm. and scrappy are, huge and hulky and surveilling. And that's sort of something that we're increasingly coming to realizations about, but like, what do we do about it? And that's our show. Many thanks to Lauren Michelle Jackson and Richard Jean So for sharing their research and thoughts about internet cultures. Richard is actually a section editor at Public Books. He edits our digital humanities section. And we published an excerpt from Lauren's book, White Negroes, called The Hipster in Public Books. So you can find links to those pieces and more of their work at publicbooks.org podcast. You can follow this show and Public Books at Public Books on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about the work that we do. And I promise it won't feel like billions of people talking all at the same time. We'd be so grateful if you would subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. And if you like the show, please tweet about it or tell some friends. The next episode of Public Books 101 is our series finale. We'll zoom out a bit to look at the economy that has developed around the internet and the digital technologies that continue to shape our lives in profound ways. We'll think about how did we get here and where do we go next? I'll talk to Margaret O'Mara, who has written an incredibly expansive history of Silicon Valley, and Meredith Broussard, who is a software developer and data journalist who really actually understands how machines and digital technologies work. So I hope you'll join me for the final episode of Public Books 101, The Internet, as we wonder, how do we build more equitable technologies as we head into the future? This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced by me, Annie Galvin, with production assistance from Jess Engebretson and Kelly Dean McKinney. It was edited by Jess Engebretson. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton. Special thanks to the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project and to the Mellon Foundation and the American Council of Learned Societies, where I am a public fellow. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time. I'll sit back. I'll (laughs) wait. I'll see whatever the next big thing. I mean, actually, like the next big thing is like TikTok, and I have no clue what's going on over there. So... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>